The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. We're going to continue our study this evening of the office of the pastor, so if you'd open your Bibles to the uh, first epistle to Timothy, chapter 3. And I want to continue in the last T of the Baptist acrostic. Uh, this is our sixth Sunday night discussing the office of the pastor and its importance for the leadership of the church. And we've spent a good deal of time in the first verse and the last phrase of the first verse where it says, if a man desire the office of a bishop. And so our study has been on the office. Uh, what is the office? What does uh, it mean? What is the work that is required in the office of the pastor? Of What does it consist? And we've learned that the pastor's work is the most important work of the ministry, that he is a guide and a helper, an encourager. He is a teacher of God's people. And because the word, or rather the office, is of such great magnitude, God requires that the person who is in the office of the pastor to be a qualified man. Of all the people that are in the world, of all the occupations that there are, there are only a few men that are chosen to be pastors of the Lord's churches. And of the few that are chosen, there are still fewer that serve the office of the pastor well and are true servants of Christ. And for that reason, the Apostle John wrote, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. The Bible gives requirements for church leaders. There are ways that we are to differentiate between the true and the false, and we have to use wisdom to discern the difference. Wisdom dictates what we do. As John said, we are to try the spirits, we're to test them, we're to look at the qualifications by the word to determine if these are true men of God. And 1 John is really a good book to use as a guide because in that book there are tests that are required, particularly tests for what is a true Christian, what is a false Christian. And as it relates to the pastor's work, perhaps the most important test that you would find in 1 John would be the doctrinal test. And in 1 Timothy, Paul doesn't actually speak of a doctrinal test. I, I think that it's assumed, it's in the background of this discussion, because there is no man who could be considered uh, for the office of the pastor if he hasn't met the doctrinal requirements. And it may very well be inferred from verse number 6, where it says that a bishop is not to be a novice, that he has to be grounded in the Word and in life experience. And then 1 John also talks about a lifestyle test. And uh, chapter 3 of that book speaks of a lifestyle of obedience and purity. He says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. And in our text, Paul concentrates on that aspect. Then there's also a love test that you find in 1 John. And certainly that would have to be an essential part of the pastor's uh, spiritual attitude, does the pastor love the people that he shepherds? You know, I often joke about this, and I'd say this would be a really great job if it wasn't for the people. But then I realize that without the people, you don't have a job because the church is the people. So you've got to deal with people. 
God loves them, and so must the pastor. And there are some of you that are difficult to deal with at times, but uh, there, are, there isn't anybody. There isn't anybody in the church that I don't care about and that I don't love. So after looking uh, at the work of the pastor, we're, we're beginning to step through the specifics of his personal character. That, that's actually part number four of our outline, the personal character of the pastor. So there is a test for the man. I've just outlined some of that in 1 John. And it is possible to find men that meet the doctrinal requirements. A man may pass the test of knowing the Scriptures. The man may understand the survey of the Bible. And he may be able and should be able to put doctrines together in such a way that he forms his a systematic theology out of them. He may know all of those things. He needs to be able to pass that test. But he's not going to be a good pastor unless he lives the Bible. He has to know how to apply the Bible to his life. And if you'll indulge me for just a moment, Paul also tells us that uh, the real proof of our Christianity is the development of a certain type of character. How do you actually know that a person has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Well, a very good starter would be to look at his life and compare it to the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians chapter 5. There Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And I would say that those are bare minimum requirements for a pastor. And these things have to be developed in him because those are the very things that we teach the people. And so if we are expecting that of the people, certainly a pastor has to have all of that in his own life because the true proof of his Christianity is there. So we want the same proof that other Christians have to be abundantly present in the life of a pastor. So as you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, the character issues that we see here could be stated as a deeper look into the fruit of the Spirit. It's the special outworking of this fruit. Now, if you look at our text in verse number 2, Paul begins with this statement. A bishop must be blameless. That's the first word that we have, that requirement that we have, that he must be blameless. And a good word that we could put in the place of that is irreproachable. If that's a little bit hard for you, then just above reproach. Uh, he's a man that cannot be charged with improprieties, especially regarding immorality. He's a man of good ethics and moral character. Now, mostly the sexual purity of the man is probably intended, as Paul connects this first word to the next qualification concerning his relationship with women. And so a great deal of attention is paid in the Scriptures to sexual conduct. That's a very important concept in the Scriptures. It dominates almost every discussion of sin that you find in the Bible. The, the sexual issues, sexual purity, are put right up there at the top of all the sin questions. For example, we see that in Romans chapter 1, and we see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And then in Galatians 5, that, that I just mentioned, where it speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, that particular chapter begins with a contrast of what it calls the works of the flesh. And the first four things that it lists in Galatians chapter 5 are sexual sins. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul begins this way, "...be ye therefore followers of God as dear children." 
And to contrast the, the indicators of a walk that's contrary to Christ, he begins with this. He says, flee fornication. Flee fornication. And then it's a characteristic of false prophets. Peter said, they have eyes full of adultery. Jude wrote the same concerning a false prophet's sin. He said they have sins like those of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and give themselves to fornication. I think you understand fornication. Maybe you don't understand lasciviousness. That means crude and offensive sexual behavior. And then finally, you come down to the very end of the Bible in Revelation 22, 21 and 22. And specifically mentioned there are whoremongers that it says are going to have their part in the lake of fire. It says that with outside or outside the gates of the New Jerusalem are dogs and whoremongers. And a whoremonger is a sexually promiscuous person. So it isn't any wonder that Paul would put blameless at the head of this list in 1 Timothy 3 as a qualification for the pastor. A pastor cannot have any sexual sin. And the temptations in the pastor's office are great. And this is probably the most common sin that brings down pastors today. When I was young, we had pastors who had come to our church camp to be camp speakers. And I remember at one particular time, in a very short amount of time, there were three pastors who had been at our church camps to preach to young people, and those three men fell because of sexual misconduct. Now, you need to understand that a pastor is influential. A pastor can be tempted, but you also ought not to forget, because of his influence over other people, that he can tempt others. And so the church has to be careful to put men into the office that are blameless. Now that brings us then to the second test of character which delves further into this particular issue. That Paul says that the pastor must be a one-woman man. He says he is to be the husband of one wife. Now often this, this text is interpreted to say things that it doesn't say. The primary meaning of it is that the man is to be devoted to his wife. Now, I'll discuss other implications that we find elsewhere. But the main intent of this passage is the relationship that a pastor has, the man has to his wife. He must be devoted to his wife, and there can't be any others that are in her place. Now, the main intent, then, is to stop what's all too frequent in the pastorate today, that because of his position, a pastor has the opportunity to be close to women who are not his wife. Sometimes a pastor will become a confidant of women that are in the church who come to ask him for advice. Now, I want to give you an example that I've experienced. Most of you are already aware that I'm not really too keen about marriage counseling. I don't think that marriage counseling is my strong point. Again, you ask my wife and she can probably tell you why that's true. Uh, I don't think marriage counseling is the strong point that I have. I believe that there are others that are better trained for it and more qualified than I. And uh, I know that there are some people who believe that this is the pastor should absolutely do this, that he has every means at his disposal to counsel because he has the Bible. And because he has the Bible, he's capable of giving all the advice that's needed. I don't doubt that statement at, at all. I do believe that everything we could possibly need is in the Word of God. It's all at our disposal. I just doubt 
that I have the ability to use everything that's at my disposal. Uh, I know that there are pastors that all have Scripture at the, uh, that, they, that they have in front of them. They have the Bible they can teach. I know that there are pastors that, that uh, could teach the doctrines of grace because it's at their disposal. But I know many of them, they're not qualified to teach it at all. So you don't want to ask them questions about it because they don't know anything about it. So in my case, I, I will help the council people if they desire that. Even though it's not my most comfortable subject, I will do it. I know that I need to have a handle on just about every spiritual problem that a person has. And so uh, if you have a problem in your spiritual life and it happens to be it, then that's fine. Uh, I'll talk to you about those things. Church members do need a confidant. They need a counselor with whom they can freely discuss all issues. Now that brings me to the thing that I wanted to say here. And that is a few years ago, there was a lady who came to speak with me who had trouble in her marriage, and I didn't expect to hear what she said to me. And she began to speak to me in a, in a very straightforward manner about problems of intimacy in her marriage. Now, I look at counseling as a very tricky business because I think there's, that any counselor will tell you that there's always a danger of transference, that counselors are human, they want to be sympathetic with people, and... A person can fall into temptation. Humans do human things. And so the nature of the pastor's office is that it exposes him to different types of temptations. And since pastors do have influence, they can actually turn the sessions that they have with women other than his wife into ways that he can take advantage of them. And the last thing that you want in a pastor's position is a sexual predator. Now we tend to think as... Sexual, of sexual predation as a Roman Catholic problem. But friends, that's found today in Baptist churches. It's found among the Baptists as well. Most of you know, uh, have heard of the pastor of an independent fundamental Baptist church in the Chicago area where the pastor's now serving a 10-year sentence for sex with a minor. Setting up sexual liaisons with a teenage girl found out accidentally when a deacon in the church picked up the pastor's cell phone off of the pulpit and there found text messages from a teenage girl. Those kinds of problems exist, not with just one or two examples, but there are many that go on in our Baptist churches. And, it, and it's sad to say that uh, although there is no denomination that is, is, that's had this problem on the scale of Roman Catholicism, the abuse and the cover-up they have, yet there is this problem among Baptists, and there is abuse and there's cover-up in the Baptist churches as well. And usually what it comes from is churches that have overbearing, controlling pastors that are nearly autonomous in their authority. Paul said that the pastor is not to have a relationship with any other person than his wife, that she is to be at the top of the list and that will keep him out of these types of problems if he has absolute devotion to her. And if his sexual attraction is only for his wife, and if he's a one-woman man, then the sanctity of his marriage relationship will help to keep him out of trouble. Now, let's keep that in mind as the primary meaning of this passage. That's the primary meaning. The pastor is to be devoted to his wife. But I think that we ought to go beyond the primary meaning and now I want to take a few minutes to talk to you about secondary implications and other questions that arise about this text. Because of trying to make these verses say too much, 
the text can be twisted to say what it doesn't say. Now the next question then to consider, and these are all things that have been asked when you discuss this passage, does husband of one wife mean that a pastor must be married? Does he have to be married? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And here we find Paul's advice on marriage. And in this passage, he responds to questions about marriage, and that's evident from what he says in verse number 1 of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 1. He said, Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now the Corinthians had evidently written to Paul about marriage. No doubt what he discusses at the end of the 6th chapter has bearing on the response that he gives. And in that 6th chapter, he spoke of sexual improprieties. And what he didn't want to do was to construe what he had to say there as a prohibition against proper sexual relationships. And so he says at the end of verse number 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And when I was in elementary school, that was fine. That was our mantra because everybody knew you don't touch them because girls have cooties. So you don't touch women. But Paul's not talking here about cooties. Uh, This is actually one of his references to intimate sexual relationships. And he's not making a slam against marriage here, but rather he's making a statement that it would be okay for a person to remain celibate. That there isn't any law that says that everybody has to be married. And in the case of a minister, I can show you why he would say that in, in, in just a moment. So Paul is discussing this. And at the same time that he says that celibacy is okay, he goes on to say that marriage is good. That sexual relations are good when they're confined to the only place where they should happen. And that's only within a marriage. That's in verse number 2. He says, nevertheless, to avoid fornication... Let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Now, if you go down to verses 7 and 8, he says, For I would that all men were even as I, myself. But every man hath this proper gift of God, one after this manner, and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. Now, we would ask, then, what is Paul's marital status? He's unmarried. And he said, it's good for you if you remain as I am. Now, he wouldn't be able to say that if there was a demand for ministers of the gospel to be married. Did he allow that they could be? Well, certainly he did, because the second part of verse 7 says that singleness is not a gift that all people have. And, of course, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 would be a strong statement that celibacy is not a requirement for pastors. So being celibate or married would be according to the gift that God gives. Now we go down to the 32nd verse and we see why Paul says that being unmarried can be an advantage. He says, but I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. Now in Paul's case, being married would be a great hindrance to his ministry. His singular dedication to the Lord's work... uh, prevented him from enjoying having that enjoyment of having a wife. He, he thought that if it would be unfair to a wife. And I really do believe that Paul thought it would be a disservice to a woman that he would marry uh, because she would be deprived of her husband most of the time as 
he was traveling around on his missionary journeys. And it would be difficult for a, a wife and a children. He would have the extra burden upon himself to make sure that they were well taken care of. Uh, they have to have funds and support. And then you would have to think, how would a wife feel if she read some of his letters? Like Second Corinthians chapter 11 where it talks about the many, many dangerous situations that he was in because of the preaching of the gospel. So Paul didn't say that a pastor must remain celibate, but neither did he say he can't be. Both of these have their advantages. An unmarried man has singular devotion. A married man, on the other hand, has an outlet for common sexual desires. He also may have an advantage that he can relate to, to families and being averse to these temptations that come from dealing with women that aren't his wife. And so we can't take 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 as a requirement that a pastor must be married. And I will say that being unmarried, though, is a gift that most men don't have. The temptations are many. A single pastor would have to be extremely cautious because of the rumors and things that go on. So there are advantages and disadvantages. Now the next question that arises out of the text is a question about polygamy. Is this a prohibition against polygamy? A man is to be the husband of one wife. So does that mean that a pastor can't have a plurality of wives? Well, that's a very good legitimate question. We're, we're acquainted with Bible stories of many heroes of the faith that had multiple wives. Jacob had two wives. And then he had two concubines. And from them came the twelve tribes of Israel. David had several wives. Solomon, of course, was legendary for having a thousand wives. And you have to look at it like this. I think sometimes that if a woman in the Old Testament couldn't get married, there had to be something seriously wrong with her. Because, I mean, you've got all these, these men that have their quiver full of women and children. And uh, they have all these multiple wives. The first polygamy goes all the way back almost to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4, verse 19. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. And as I count that, it only took seven generations from the very beginning for marriage to be perverted. The first polygamy happened in a heathen marriage, but it's not very long before you find God's people embracing polygamy. Now, most people... Uh, uh, believe that the, the picture of the Lord Jesus and his church is the picture that we find with Isaac and Rebekah as being the perfect example of, of Christ and the church because Isaac, living at that time, only had one wife and he was totally devoted to Rebekah. But marriage has been perverted, or it was perverted then, and along came the mess that Jacob fell into. And then by the time you get very far into the Old Testament, you find that it's filled with polygamy. And so people assume, well, this is the Bible, and Paul lived in Bible times, and so he must have been dealing with an issue of polygamy. But in Paul's time, neither the Jews nor the Romans practiced polygamy. Now, there were some that did, just like you have in modern America, there are some that do. But normal society at that time was monogamous. One man, one woman, that's his wife, so Paul didn't have to address a problem of rank, rampant polygamy. The Romans were like people today. They had mistresses. I don't know if anybody has concubines today, but they had concubines still. But they did not have a plurality of wives. And so when Paul said husband of one wife, 
He wasn't thinking of polygamy because that was so abnormal that even the world wasn't practicing that, so he didn't have to deal with it. Then the next question that comes is, uh, concerns the death of the spouse. When it says one wife, did it mean, does he mean that there are no circumstances that a man can't have a second wife? Can he get married again? Now for that we have to see what Paul advised about remarriage. Uh, back in 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. Now the marriage bond is intact only if the spouse is alive. Death releases a person from the marriage vows. Paul refers to the woman in the verse, but the same would be true of the man. In fact, if we go back to 1 Timothy and uh, chapter 5, there Paul advises young widows to remarry. He says in verse 14 of that chapter, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Now, young women there refers to young widows, which you can see if you go back up a little bit previous to that, to verse number 11. And then, of course, he would also be talking about older widows as well. They can remarry if they want. So the same thing that's true for them is true for the widower. If, if he doesn't want to stay unmarried, he doesn't have to stay unmarried. He's free to marry if he wants because death has ended that vow to be intimate with no one but that first wife. So there isn't a requirement to remarry. There isn't a requirement to stay unmarried. The husband of one wife in the passage has nothing to do with remarriage on the death of the pastor's wife or that a man would be considered unqualified if before he got into the pastorate that his wife had died and he married uh, another woman. Now the last question though is probably the one that most people are waiting on. This is the one that people want to know. This question gets the most travel. Does husband of one wife mean that the man cannot be divorced? And my answer may surprise you. No, it does not mean the man cannot be divorced. But then you ask, well, pastor, don't we teach that a pastor can't be divorced? Yes, we do. But not because of this verse. Because this verse doesn't teach that. As I explained later at the beginning, this verse refers to the devotion of a man to his wife. It doesn't say anything at all about divorce. And so to settle the divorce question, we've got to look elsewhere. And that's not an easy question for us to answer, and it's certainly not a cut-and-dry answer to this problem. Now, first, what we need to do is to consider the question of divorce in general. What does the Bible say about divorce? Well, Jesus made it clear that if a man divorces his wife under wrong circumstances, that it's sinful. So let's go to Matthew chapter 19. What does the Bible say about divorce? Uh, while you're turning there, I'll say divorce is a terrible thing. The fact that it's common and many marriages in that way doesn't make it better. It's never good. Somebody's always hurt in divorce. And sadly, many times it's children that get hurt. Uh, and I'm going to speak about divorce in the Sunday morning sermons that are coming up as we, when we get into the seventh commandment. So you'll get just a little bit of a preview of it here. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse number 1, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? 
And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now the rest of the passage is good. You can go on reading, and there you'll find that Jesus comments on singleness. Now he says in verse number 9 that divorce and remarriage create a problem of adultery. Now that's the first thing that stands out to us. Divorce and remarriage create a problem of adultery. And what have we already said about adultery? Adultery stands at the top of, of these lists of sins. Usually it stands at the top of the list of sins that would exclude a person from being in the pastor's office. Now if a divorce and remarriage cause this problem of, of, of adultery, then that rules out a divorced man from pastoring. But that only answers a part of the question. Divorce and remarriage without a just cause, according to Jesus, uh, for fornication by one of the marriage partners, rules out a man from the pastorate. But what if he is divorced and his wife is at fault? What if she had an affair? And because of that, they got divorced. Would that rule him out from being a pastor? Well, without reopening old wounds, that was part of the problem of the resignation of the former pastor of this church. He knew that he couldn't continue as the pastor if he was divorced. And that's what happened. And I'm not going to speculate on, on where all the blame lies in that case. But there is a lot of controversy over this issue. And when the pastor resigned... One of the missionaries of the church uh, called me. I guess he wrote to me instead of, of calling me. But he wrote to me and he said that the church should not have forced the pastor to resign. Now, I'm, there's issues around that particular piece as well about whose idea was it for the pastor to resign to begin with. And in fact, that happened to be his. So, uh, although that, it would have come to that conclusion anyway. But he, he was the first one that put it up that he ought to resign. So he realized that he couldn't pastor the church uh, uh, being a divorced man. Well, the missionary wrote to me and he said, the church is wrong, that the church should not force the pastor to resign. So I just wrote back to him and said, you don't have any business telling us what this church is to do because you're not here, you don't know the situation, you didn't see what happened, you're not acquainted with what we know, and so you best keep your opinion to yourself. And so he decided that having our support was a lot better than maintaining his position uh, to, uh, uh, to go against us and protest against that particular issue. So what is the answer to this? I'm not going to go into it fully, but I think we find part of our answer in verse number 4. That the pastor must be a man who rules his own house well. Now, if we allow a divorced man to pastor then wouldn't we need to be the judge of all the conflicts that exist that cause a divorce? Wouldn't we need to investigate to see if the claims are true? And wouldn't there be many other deep-seated issues that might lead a woman to leave her husband? 
Oh, he could say, well, she's guilty of adultery, but how do we know what kinds of things that might have gone on in that household that led to it? That doesn't justify her, but what about all the other things that might have happened? Is the house being ruled well? Is that what the church is to do? Are we to be put into a position where we are arbitrators of, of these types of things, that we make these kinds of decisions, what goes on in a person's household? Isn't it better for us to protect ourselves from the stigma that a divorce causes and not to spend our time trying to justify a decision that we've made? Now, it seems to me that we're speaking of wisdom and discernment, that if you use your head on this, that you know that the church does not want to get mixed up in that kind of controversy. And as much as we may like the man who has the problem, the man is not bigger than the ministry. The ministry is the thing. This is the Lord's church, not the man's church. Now, I know some don't see it that way. There are divorced pastors. When I was uh, home in Kentucky this past October, I learned of uh, one of the pastors of the churches there that used to be in our fellowship. The pastor who is there now had been divorced three times. Now, if you can divorce once, why not twice? Why not three times? Well, it seems clear enough to me that even though we can't find a chapter and verse for this that specifically addresses it, that what we are to do as the Lord's church is to use wisdom, to do what's logically right for the church to do, considering all the factors that are involved. So I think that we could determine one of two things about this. First of all, is it a divorce that's clearly wrong? Is there fornication that's involved? Is it an unscriptural divorce? Or if not, if, if there's not, is that an unscriptural divorce? Or is it a divorce that is so fraught with problems that trying to unravel all the layers that caused it, that, that it would make, us, make it best for us to completely steer clear of the issue because we don't want to step on a landmine later that hasn't been uncovered. Now that brings me then to a final question. What if all this happened before the man was saved? What if in the distant past, the man was divorced? Well, he was unsaved at the time. He had no spiritual understanding of, of all these things, and God saved him. And now he is a good, godly man. Can he be considered for the office? Now, the defense for that would be what you would expect. God forgives all sin. There's no sin that God holds against us when we're lost and we get saved. God's not keeping a record of the sins that we committed before. The slate is completely wiped clean. So no sin held against us. Would a divorce disqualify him? Now you're beginning to see how difficult these questions are. We don't have scenarios for this with chapter and verse like, like many other things. There are other things in the scriptures uh, that have no explicit command, no explicit instructions concerning them, and the only ally that we have to decide these things is wisdom. So we look at this as, what is best for the church? Now, would you agree with me that the pastor's office is so important that we must always consider what's best for the church? No man is perfect. We know that. Uh, if we look for a perfect man, nobody could ever become a pastor. But at the same time, don't we have a mandate as God's people to eliminate as many problems as we can at the very beginning and all along through the whole thing? We have a mandate to get rid of all the problems that we can. Now, here, here's the way that I see it, that one of the issues that a pastor will need to deal with is marriage and divorce. He has to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. So this means that, that 
especially on this subject that's so prevalent, so big a problem in churches today and among the general population, that surely he will have to preach on this particular issue. There are family problems that he has to give advice about. And if he's a man with a divorce, then his circumstance is immediately drawn into that conversation. And so this man, who is the pastor who's been divorced, finds himself in the middle of the situation before anything ever begins. 99% of people know nothing at all about scriptural requirements and arguments that I presented to you. They know nothing at all about the differences between pre-salvation sins and post-salvation sins. They can't evaluate the difference between those things. And so what they're looking for is the excuse. And they'll find one. And if the pastor is divorced, he becomes the excuse. The mitigating circumstances don't matter. He's the excuse. If the pastor can be divorced, then why can't I? So the pastor's in the middle of that conversation. That's one that can't be avoided. So I don't see how that it makes any sense to make the man the center of the controversy. So we would have to ask this when we're investigating, if this is what we're going to do. We would say, well, what caused his divorce? And I'm talking about a man that, you know, goes back before the time that he was saved. Wouldn't we still want to know these kinds of things? What caused the divorce? Did he walk out on his wife? Did he do that before he was saved? Was there some kind of abuse involved in it? Did he abuse his wife? Is that a problem before he was saved? Don't those things have bearing on the way that people think? Uh, aren't people in the church or people evaluating the situation, don't they actually judge people on such things? A man who does something in the past is likely to do it again in the future. Maybe that's not true of a person who's saved, but isn't that the way that people think? And so they look over the situation and they want to know these kinds of questions. What is that that caused the divorce? And so now we find ourselves in the middle of all kinds of secondary questions and all kinds of different qualifications, things that we don't need to deal with. And as I've mentioned too, what about children? Were there children in that marriage? What do you do about that? And so now we've got to make a decision. Well, can it only be divorced men that didn't have children? Or is it all right for someone to have ruined a child's life by a divorce? Questions, questions, questions. Too many determinations to make. Too many pitfalls. Why in the world we want to put ourselves in the middle of that? And so the best solution is not to get involved in an investigative process. The best solution is to take a path that leads to the least amount of controversy. And you just make that across the board. Our bylaws say no divorced man can be a pastor of this church. We don't have to worry about the caveats of that statement because there are none. No divorced person can be a pastor of this church. And so you see that teaching about pastors and divorce is not an arbitrary thing. This is carefully thought out. Although we can't find that chapter and verse that says specifically, a divorced man cannot pastor the church. Yet we can look to the whole scripture. And we consider what the church is all about. We carefully consider what the word of God says. And we use wisdom. That's what this series is about. Using wisdom. What's going to be best for the church? And what I would ten times rather do is to err on the side of caution than to have a headache and a nightmare to solve later that I can't solve. So did Paul say, no divorce? When he wrote, husband of one wife, did he say, no divorce? No, that's not what he's talking about in that passage. But we have another, enough other evidence in the Scriptures 
that we are to use wisdom, and that here is a man, he may be a good godly man, but let him serve in another way. He doesn't need to be a pastor of the church. And if we keep that rule, we're going to be a lot better off. We're just not going to run into problems if we just say, no, you can't have it this way. We're certainly not going to hurt, hurt the Lord's cause by doing it that way. Now, um, that's, that, that's where I want to stop for this evening. Uh, th there's this issue, as I've, uh, I've said several times in this study, someday I'm going to die, someday's going to happen, something's going to happen to me, and I'm not going to be here. There are all kinds of questions that you'll have to consider. When you, when you look at another pastor. And so we do need to know how to answer these questions. Consider all the options wisely. And maybe I brought up something here tonight that caused you to think and you still got questions about it. Happy to answer other things to the best of my ability. But this is how that I see the Scriptures. And I think all of it, again, hinges probably somewhere around there in, uh, in verse number 4. One that ruleth well his own house having his children in subjection with all gravity. That has more to say than just about the child, ruling the whole house well in all aspects of it, and that's going to mean having a marriage that is proper before the Lord. We stick with that, we'll be safe, I think, in what the Lord wants us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you tonight, Lord, for those who've come out to hear the Word preached and, and taught, to hear explanations of things that we believe that we find in Scripture. Lord, uh, most of all, we want to make it very, very clear that we put your church above everything that we do. That we put your church above even our own lives because we represent the Lord Jesus Christ and we reach souls. Souls are saved through this saving institution of your church. And we just can't do anything that hinders that work. This is what we've been left in the world to do. And so we want to be the very best that we can be in our attitude, in our lives, and everything that we do to serve you in the ways that you would have us to serve. And then, Lord, I would say this as well. Uh, you know our heart on this, that there are many, many good men in our churches that are divorced. And this is not a statement against them. This is particular to this office. And, and this is the best way that we think that it's carried out according to your word. So, Lord, help us with this. Give us understanding and appreciation of what your word says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.